the scripture reading or the sermon text. Romans 8, 26 through 30. The title is All Things for Our Good. Not somebody else's good, but our good. Today we are going to go into the deep end of the theological pool. Election. Predestination. The will of God. The Holy Spirit. Prayer. Providence. These are what we have called Reformed theology or Calvinism or doctrines of grace. But let me tell you from scripture that these are merely what the Bible teaches. But I want to ask you today as we go into this, what is the context? How are these mysterious and yet true doctrines applied? From the Godhead to sinners who are now saints. To bring salvation and keep the saints in the faith. Friends, when we read this text, think about this. Who is the one who is keeping you? Why are these truths, these hard to understand or fathom truths, why are they given? And to whom and why in Romans are, is Paul declare this today? These doctrines of undeserved favor, we call them the doctrines of grace, meaning God gives us the revelation of himself. These promises. He gives us this knowledge that is in scripture. These are grace because they're undeserved. These are nothing that you and I can do. They are nothing we asked for. They are not earned. They are not propositioned nor pleaded for. They are provided and present for each and every saint. Regardless of the Christian's acknowledgement of them. So you and I, we do not come to faith knowing these doctrines. We come to faith believing and trusting in the Lord. But as we understand more and more that the gospel was not given to mildly moral people or halfway sinners, but to those who were dead in sins and trespasses. You and I recognize a peek behind the curtains that if we had never, if God had not done this work, we would have never chosen God. And yet, now that we are in the faith, do these doctrines now make sense? Are they merely to jumpstart our car or start our engine? Or what will these doctrines do for the rest of our Christian life? Regardless of, a, of, a, of if a genuine Christian acknowledges these doctrines, they are that which keeps the Christian. And yet acknowledging them is glorious and free because they are given for our good. They are good and necessary, and they bring the utmost humility and true peace with God to his glory. Now, I want you to give you an image as we go into this text. In some senses, Romans kind of goes back and forth. For a while, it talks about the destruction and fallenness of man, and then it talks about what God does. And then it goes back to now our responsibility in Christ, and that was Romans 7 to early Romans 8. And now, we're going back to God's uh, part of the covenant. Remember, um, God is the one doing the work. I want to ask you this image is this. Is the Christian life, is it a battlefield? Or is it like Noah's Ark? Meaning this, is it a battlefield where you and I are advancing and being part of the kingdom and, and moving forward and we must move forward and obey the general? Or is it Noah's Ark where the battle and the storms rage around us and yet we are safe and secure within the confines of his grace. The weather will not come in. The storms will not harm us. We will be kept safely. Is it one or the other? Well, yes and yes. It's both and. But the focus today is not on the battlefield. The focus today is on the ark. Who is the one fighting our battles? 
And who really is doing the work? And if you are a Christian, these doctrines of grace are for your security and your safety and your conscience and your confidence. Christian, God will do his work. Please stand. Let's read Romans 8, 26 through 30. Let me read this. Page 11, 23. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Friends, this ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. immediate context i want to remind you that this would be a obviously this would be a great passage for us to spend several sunday schools on it would be a good passage for in fact i would say many preachers in the pulpit have spent several weeks on each one of these doctrines um i am going to preach this not one verse at a time here but in the context because i think it's important to understand where these doctrines are placed they're not randomly just thrown out in scripture for god to say oh yeah there's a bunch of these mysterious doctrines and here's a just a kind of a brief you know, kind of bullet point uh, on all those controversial doctrines and the strange things in the Bible. These doctrines of grace. No, they're given within a context. In the context, look at verse 23 and 24 and 25. The immediate context is God's redemption of all of creation. And not only creation, look at verse 23, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await for adoption as sons, for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now, Hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The basic definition of hope is a future promises that are not yet fulfilled, either fully or even partially, or maybe they're partially fulfilled, but the true measure of them has not been given us to us. So we, we act in hope, and we, we do this in life all the time. We act, okay, you know, you, 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 you work a job, not being paid ahead of time usually, but usually work a job expecting that at the end of the week you'll get your paycheck or end of the month or whatever else. Okay? That's a hope you have. And it's a pretty strong and guaranteed hope. You don't know if the banks are going to fail in the meantime. You don't know what else is going to happen. But you hope in that. We hope in all kinds of things every day. You hoped as you came here that your car would drive safely. Um, it was not an insecure hope, but there was a certain sense of hope you didn't even think about today. But in the meantime, we are to obey the Lord. The Bible here, the, the implication, or the, 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 the 23 through 25, it's wait with patience. We've read in chapter 8 earlier, we are to fight the fight. We are to suffer with Christ. We are to renew our minds. This is our part of the covenant. We are to obey the Lord. 
sanctification, and the Bible says we hate with hope, we wait with hope, and hope is a commandment, and it is our responsibility to have hope. We, we, we hope. Therefore, the question might be this. Is it upon our strength of faith which keeps us in the faith? Which keeps us hoping? I mean, you can hope for something good for how long? Right? A week? A month? We hope in spring that spring will come. And it has been a long winter, an extra long winter. In fact, we're seeing record snowfalls, so we hear. And we're going to have snow again this week. But we know spring is going to come. So it's worth waiting, right? I don't think anyone here, I didn't hear anyone pack a moving truck and just move down to Arizona and leave your home because you know it'll just be eternal winter here, right? Why? You know spring's going to come. We can't wait for it, right? But we, we can wait. What? Because we know that at the most we'll wait another week, another month, but it will come. But what about hope which is partially at least deferred until our death or Christ's return? In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews, look, there are parts of the promise that those who died in faith did not receive. There is a sense of we already have received Christ in, 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 in the sense, or sense is a, is, a, is a poor choice of words. And we really do have Christ right now. But it's unseen Christ. We, we don't have fully what we will have. We still bear this in the body of death, in the world that the devil is doing all of his, all of his sneaky things in, and then the, 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 the temptations of the world around us. We groan. We cry, Abba, Father. Why? Because... We don't have. We live with deferred hope for the future. But in some ways, that's a long time to wait. You become a Christian at a, long, at a young age and you live till 90. I mean, you are waiting. You are every week coming to church. You're following the Lord. You're, 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 you're sometimes being rejected by friends. You're not doing some of the things that maybe your flesh tells you. And, and you wait for a long time. You know that if you've waited for marriage because you're a Christian, you've waited for, the, for a godly spouse, you may have to wait for a while in the culture we live in. Is it worth it? We know that compromise is not worth it. You can get the immediate gratification, but the long-term ramifications are terrible. But while we suffer, there is an unseen hope. We, don't suffer not apart, we suffer not apart from hope, but because of it. But my question is, how can a sinner... Even one who is redeemed, keep and even grow in this hope. With all the old self clinging, the temptations of the world, and the attacks of the devil assaulting us. Now we can declare from scripture it's worth it. But how do we stay in the faith? When if we are to honest, be honest with ourselves, we are tempted greatly every day. In fact, we sin more than we like to admit. Both in what we do by disobeying God's word and thought and deed, but also what we fail to do, cowardice, failure to do the right thing. Right? If we were the Lord were to count our sins, who would stand? Even as Christians, we have a weak faith. And you know that sometimes it's, it seems like it's seasonally, or you have like one bad night of sleep, and it's like, what happened the next day? Why am I so discouraged all of a sudden? Why am I so angry and cranky? Right? Well, that's the sin nature still in you. Right? We don't respond well to things. We still respond in the flesh. Is it worth it? In fact, not only is it worth it, but how do we keep the faith? How do I know I'm not going to compromise? How do I know that I'm not going to be like many of those who once were walking with the Lord or seemed to be and now have apostatized and gone the opposite? What does God do while we wait in hope? Friends, the answer is clear in Scripture, and this is the context. When we wait in hope, what is God doing? He is keeping you. 
How? The Holy Spirit. Friends, the Holy Spirit is not a part of God, nor a manifestation of God, nor something that we could just kind of conjure up at different things that we do. He's the third person of God, and he dwells within a fallen sinner who has now been declared a saint. The third person of the Trinity dwells within you. And what does he do? Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The song we sing, Jesus, what a friend for sinners, tempted, tried, and sometimes failing. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, we, we sing in the other song. We say that sanctification is 100% God, 100% us. What is our 100%? Well, here, it's, we don't get a whole lot of credit. It's not a good um, assessment of us. Look at how the scripture says right here. In the verse before, he says, well, we wait with hope. And now he says, we, we have weakness. We are stumbling in darkness. We don't even know how to pray. I mean, we have the God of the universe who has revealed himself to us in Christ. His word is clear in the Bible. says, we don't even know how to pray as we ought. It's right before us. Why? We don't know God as we ought, and thus we do not know ourselves. We are still so influenced by the old ways, the carnal flesh, the confusion of the world. Let me say here, this is why the preaching of God's glory, preaching books of the Bible, as we do Sunday school, talking about those great doctrines of, that we find in the confessions, that's why, and the attributes of God from Scripture are so crucial. If you have a low view of God, you will have stunted prayers. How many of us, early in our faith, or how many of us have been to many events, the Christian events, where all we hear are prayers like, well, God, just be with them. God, bless them. As if God's not already here and already blessing us. But just kind of casual, Hallmark card kind of prayers, right? Thank you for this day. Well, those are fine prayers in and of themselves. But often, if that's all we pray... Do we even know our own weaknesses? Do we even, and the Bible says no. In fact, early on in your Christian life, often that is how you pray, right? It's just like, you know, just pray for the next thing and bless. But you're not asking specifically, God, help me in this certain situation. Help me to live righteously here. Help me to find wisdom. Why? We had a low view of God, gave shallow prayers. So often in our relationship with Christ was just give me, give me, give me. God be with me. God bless them. Make things go well. Right? Now, early on in our faith, that, that is certainly um, a reflection of, of our old self. But as Christians, we should be maturing off of those. Because if that's all your prayers, you are, will be perpetually weak and insecure. You will lack assurance. And you will rely upon only what you can comprehend. Have you noticed, friends, that as your... The so, so that was early on, but have you noticed... Even being here, even being in the church, that as your theological depth and doctrinal breadth has increased and widened, as we've sung hymns and psalms now, have you noticed that your repentance has grown? Have you noticed that your prayers have expanded to be more and more specific? Have you noticed, as we've sang the imprecatory psalms, that you're actually able to and given permission and even commanded to pray against wicked rulers? That we don't have to just go, geez, I just hope the military takes care of us. You know, I hope for another election. Oh, we can pray right now, right? It's not unspiritual to do that. Have your prayers expanded to be more and more specific? Yes, why? Why? Because 
You are maturing in the faith. Teaching and preaching of the word. Singing of the songs. Regular worship. Gives us a greater view of God, but it also takes the view off of ourselves. We begin to understand that below those initial big sins that we committed was pride, self-sufficiency, a poor worldview of life, a therapeutic view of self to where we're always the victim. Sin is just something that happens. It's not something that dwells from within. So good teaching Maturity is not only hearing the great doctrines of truth, but also we learn more about ourselves. This is why I, I've said before, and I'll say again, as we go into the sex, you, you, these, these, these scriptures that we're going to hear, these great doctrines, are never, ever, ever meant to just be intellectual fodder for the smart guys to talk about. You know, I have zero interest in somebody, you know, if all they want to do is just discuss just the these doctrines for an intellectual exercise. Zero. Zero interest. Why? Because they're not intellectual doctrines. They are doctrines of grace for each and every Christian. They are to grow our faith. Why? Because we can learn to rely upon the Lord. But let me say this. You will never get this or you'll never comprehend this unless you understand yourself as a sinner. Right? If, if, if your view of sin is just merely, I, you know, I did a few bad things. And God came and he saved me and, and now I'm living my life. You, have no, you won't have any need for these. You don't know how to pray. But if you begin to more and more understand and let the Lord work. Uh, in, 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 and it's not fun and it's not easy. But as the Lord begins to work in your own heart. As you begin to recognize the idolatry of your heart. And even just, just you know why you keep doing the same things. And, and how much your heart is still prone as a sinner to the old ways. How much temptation still causes you, even how um, weak you are. You learn to not rely on yourself. You learn that, oh, these doctrines, not merely by me living in self-pity all the time, but these doctrines are meant to strengthen me. Why? Because they reflect and they reveal who the strong one really is in this relationship. So these doctrines are glorious. How has your faith grown and matured? Well, you obeyed God. You put off the old self. You don't grow unless you obey. You don't grow unless you repent. You abided, repentant, joined the church. But how? Why did you do that? Well, beneath everything you did, behind everything you did, the Holy Spirit was praying for you, driving you, compelling you, convicting you to know God more, to be humble, to obey the Lord, even to put off even the things that the world says are good and well for the things of God. Why is this? Did you know that the Holy Spirit was interceding for you when you didn't know the Holy Spirit was interceding for you? Who is he interceding for? For, for? for you to whom God the Father. We are in union with Jesus Christ. We are suffering with Christ. We are ruled by God the Father, but we are also indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There's a Trinitarian. The whole of the Godhead is working for our faith and our endurance in the faith. He is waiting for, as we wait for creation to be restored, the God of the Bible, the God of creation, is working in every area for creation to be restored, including you and I. So therefore, when we didn't or even still don't know how to articulate our feelings, our need, he does. Here, the term that is used is, the, is groaning. You know the Holy Spirit is groaning for your faith and your endurance beyond words, meaning you and I don't even know what we need. We can't even comprehend that. We don't even have words for it. 
Uh, it's not that maybe he's groaning in another language, but he knows actually what needs to happen for you and I to be sanctified. He knows the theology of God. He knows what we need to learn. He knows what our lives will look like. And he's got the words to say that. He knows how to pray. He knows our need. He brings these requests to God the Father. You know that why did you come to church today? Well, you, you got in a car and you drove here. And you know why else you drove to church today? Because the Holy Spirit was praying to God to bring you to church today. You know why else you went to church today? Because God the Father was ordaining and bringing you to, the, to church today. Do you understand that? We are responsible, of course. That's good theology. We are moral agents. But this text is not talking about that. It's talking about what is happening behind the curtains simultaneously on the same wavelength. Remember, friends, we live in a world where it's not just a unilateral world. We just operate or God just operates. But the same thing happens at the same time. God is working and you and I are operating. But who is the more powerful one? If it had to be you and I, that is a scary way to live. But when we understand these great doctrines, we actually grow in our faith. Why? Because we're no longer relying on me and my feelings and only what I can understand. My own theological journey, I did not grow up with this view. I did not grow up with a, a good view of, of sin or theology. It wasn't until my late 20s. I, I didn't understand all these doctrines before I got in the ministry. I was already in the ministry when I started to understand these things. And every shift I've had in my view of family or church or theology, God was compelling me and the Holy Spirit was praying for me. So as you're starting to wrestle with these hard doctrines, the Spirit is praying for you, groaning too deep for words. For why? Because he knows the will of God. Look at verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, this is where more doctrinal truths meet and find application. We, we, so here's a, a couple theological distinctions that are here. What we see in Scripture is summarized are there are two wills of God. We call these wills the secret will and the revealed will, meaning this. The revealed will is what God has given us in Scripture, right? So it is always the will of God for you and I to obey the Ten Commandments. It is always the will of God for us to come to church. It's, it's, it's always the will of God for us to live moral lives, to not lust and covet, right? to obey the Lord, to trust in him. Why? Because scripture commands it. That's the will of God. You don't have to search for that. Just go do that. The secret will of God is how is God working behind the scenes to bring about his end? We know the end is going to come. We know that our nation's leaders cannot rage against God indefinitely. We know God will thwart their plans. We just don't have the revelation of how that's going to happen. That's why we have to trust in the Lord. But you know who does know? The Spirit. The Spirit knows both the revealed will of God, and he also knows the secret will of God. He knows the way that this is going to happen. You can know the revealed will of God. You're responsible to act on this. And the Spirit knows the revealed will and the secret will, and he will bring about the secret will to pass. So what is our confidence? Here, it is what we can know, what our confidence can be. This is the summary of the working of the Holy Spirit according to the promises and plans of God. So if you ever have anybody say to, to, say to you, which is pretty common today, well, you know, you're a Christian, but you, you, know, you really don't have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't speak to me, you like he does to me. Did you know the event I went to that I received the Holy Spirit? 
You know, you can look at him, you can take him to this text and say, look, I don't know about all that, but this is what the Holy Spirit actually does. He reveals to us the will of God. And not just some secret crazy will that's only available to you. No, he brings our lives in alignment with what his scripture says. He brings things to pass. Think about your life as you look back. Think about all the ways even in which you sinned in spite of your desire to obey God. God was using those things to trip you up, to bring you away from yourselves. Are there events in your life that you look back at your past and you would not do it again? Well, there should be. You should have regrets. We all have regrets. And yet, when you look back, how did God use even your sin to humble you? Would you want your kids to go through the same thing? No. And yet, you want your kids to be humbled. We want our kids to have a better view of God maybe than we had growing up, to not have to stumble through life as we often did. We want our kids to be ready to be married and to be selfless and to have good manners and ready to serve the Lord and commitment to church, all those things. And yet when you look back at your life, was it not God's grace that kept you? What did God do in your life? And we know, here's the rub. We know that for those, so we're talking about the secret things of God, and now we come to this reveal, this great promise. One that you should memorize in your Bible. You should memorize, underline in your Bible and memorize. This is it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Notice we have moved from the description of the past of the sons of God to the active, those that love God. It's the same description. If you are a son of God, you love God. And if you love God, it's because you are a son of God. You were adopted by God the Father. Here is the pattern. Here, here will be the mosaic of all God's decreed will, the restoration of all things. We can, what can we not know? We don't know all the way in which the future is going to come to pass, but God does. God doesn't just know, he's ordained it. He knows everything. He doesn't give knowledge to us, but the Holy Spirit is praying and bringing that, keeping us in the will of God so that we could see the secret will of God revealed. We can look back at our lives and say, oh man, God was working in spite of me. Praise God for that. Or, you know, I didn't know why this situation happened. I mean, th those people today in Nashville where their school, their, their Christian school is shot up in a Presbyterian church. They're not looking back today and going, man, how much good did God bring out of all of this? Now, they, they may be able to say, you know what? God's bringing good in the sense that we're still in the faith and we're here today praying and we can grieve in the family of God. But they don't know. Right now, it's a time of grief, and it's a time of evil, and, and a time to wrestle with their own hearts, and they're going to have some justice system issues they'll probably have to deal with. And there's a time to do funerals. But maybe a year from now, they may be able to look back and go, wow, even in spite of that evil, in spite of that tragedy, it was still evil, it was still tragic, but God did good through it. Praise God that evil was not going to win. In fact, God, in his strange mysterious ways we get to see what has come to pass 1956 is always a great example with the five uh, missionaries Jim Elliott and Roger Udarian and Pete Fleming and Ed McCulley and Nate Saint and they're five young men and they're going to go witness to the tribe of this 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 murderous most murderous uh, people group the Alka Indians or the Wydownies they're also called on the planet in Ecuador and um they don't even get in and witness, and they all are killed on the beach, right? And 
it was a big deal, I guess. I wasn't alive at the time, obviously. I, not many, I don't think anyone here would have been or barely alive, but from what I've heard, that was a big deal. It was a big deal internationally. It was a big deal. There were many people were Wheaton College grads. One was a World War II vet. It was the time of the missions movement coming out of a lot of the Campus Crusade for Christ, all these things, sending missionaries out. And, uh, and it was a big deal. And a lot of the big deal was, what a waste. They didn't even get to share the gospel. They were killed. And if you know this story, one of their widows, Elizabeth Elliot, and one of their sisters, Rachel Saint, goes into the tribe and somehow able to make inroads there because of their faithfulness and humility. The tribe actually allowed them in afterwards. They led the tribe to Christ. This whole tribe changes many of them. They became adopted uh, grandparents of those whose they had murdered their own parents. Right? And the mosaic gets told and told and told. And a year later, you couldn't have looked back and said, how did this work out for good? But 60 years later, we can. And the amount of missionaries that were, that were sent out to the world and the amount of people that were able to, to go out and the amount of the church that it was strengthening. You look back and you go, oh, wow, God, you were doing that, weren't you? Providence can be evaluated looking backwards, but looking forward, we, we, we look forward with obedience and faith in the Lord. But we can recognize this scripture. We know that for those who love God, all things will work out for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. How is this happening? What's the timing? Who are the players? We don't know beyond today. But God does and he's working in, outside and through our wills and the will of all creation to bring about his designed ends. But I want to say this, more. It doesn't just say all things will work out. But all things will work out for what? For good. God is the good one. He is the one who's perfect. He created the world and he called it good. He raised Christ from the dead in the morning. Life, the curse was broken and atonement was fulfilled. It was good. He is restoring the creation to its created goodness. But more, there are good ends for even us. As we read about in scripture earlier that Paul read, right? He is not, not going to give us... He's not going to trip us up. He's not going to give us a scorpion when we ask for bread. He's not going to, he's not some maniacal, tyrannical maniac. He's a good God. Not only, or, not only this, but he's not just saying, well, geez, you know, here's the race of life and get ready, get set, go. Hope to see you on the other side so I can give you your, 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 your first prize or maybe your participation trophy. No, he's actually ordaining. He's working in and through every area of our life, every moment of our life. To bring about good ends. Even when things in and of themselves do not seem or are not good. The ends will be good. For the redeemed who were once condemned, each one of us, but more. The process is also good. All things are planned by God for our good. Friends, nothing is outside of God's sovereignty. And nothing in God's secret will will ultimately be bad for the Christian. Remember these scriptures, Isaiah 45, I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord, I do who does all these things. I am the Lord, there is none beside me, there is no God. I will equip you, though you do not know me, that my people may know from the rising of the sun from the west, there is none beside me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Proverbs 25, 2, it is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search them out. Daniel 2.20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. 
He removes kings and set up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and acknowledgement to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. Psalm Acts 20, 20 through 20, or 20, 23 and Acts 4, 27. These are two scriptures where both the will of man and the will of God are both working at the same time. This Jesus delivered up to, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 4.27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan is predestined to take place. If you notice in those scriptures, and those are ones worth underlining, two things are happening. It's one of those ones where scripture gives us that revelation of both and at the same time. Was Jesus crucified by sinful and wicked men who will be held account for their wickedness? Absolutely. Was Jesus also crucified and killed according to the plan and foreknowledge of God? Why? To redeem all of creation. To break the curse and to win and to justify those who he had foreknown and those whom he had chosen. Remember, friends, Jesus Christ did not come to save, to save good people but to save sinners. And if you and I had not been chosen by God, we would never choose God. We understand that through texts like these, how good that is and how necessary it is. Psalm 91a, no evil will befall you, meaning no evil will kill your soul. It will not take away your justification. You will stay in the faith. Why? God is doing this. Even evil will be conformed to God's purpose. Think about Genesis 50, 20, as Joseph is looking back at his life and all the wicked things that his brothers had done to him. And he said to them, what you meant for evil against me, God meant for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, God knew God had planned a famine. And even though Joseph's brothers did great evil against Joseph, God ordained it in such a way through all of the mysteries of his providence to bring Joseph into this land where he would humble him Remember, he went into um, slavery as just a spoiled brat, you know, uh, bragging about his coat to his brothers, really foolish thing to do. And he comes out of prison, this wise, righteous, moral man who becomes the second rule in the kingdom as a foreigner. Why? Because God did that. And God had ordained it in such a way. We do not have a diary of all that happened when he was in, um, in Potiphar's house or in prison, but we do know this, that Whatever was happening, he had become a changed man. Through suffering, God had done great good in his life. And not only good that would benefit only him in heaven, but good for his entire family and for the entirety of creation at the time. He became God's ambassador, God's ruler. God had brought about good ends, and Joseph himself says this. See, his brothers had said to him, look, now that our father's dead, we know we did evil. Now it's Joseph's time to punish him. Maybe he's only been good to us because he's loyal to our father. Joseph says, no. Yeah, you did evil. But God intended this for good. How much, how much can that perspective change, even the culture we live in today? There are many things we don't ask for and we fight against and we will speak against. And yet this is the time that we live in. And God is bringing about good purposes. And maybe if it's nothing else, then we no longer can just rely upon our comforts we cannot take for granted the liberties we have. We cannot take for granted even the church that we celebrate the freedoms we have. 
God is doing good. Look back at your life. What good did God bring out of good things? And what good did God bring out of bad and rotten things? Did God in his secret counsels ordain even suffering for your good? Did he allow you at times to see the consequences for your sin and maybe even the sin of others that you had to endure, but ultimately was to bring about good for you? It may not be something you're proud of and it may not be something that you don't regret, but God is bringing about good. And maybe the good is at the time, maybe if you can't even see it, it's nothing more than you can turn on Jesus today and you trust in him. So Jesus, if it's nothing more than I am going to rely on you more than myself and my feelings, Praise God for that. Even before and when you knew how to pray, God was doing this. Friends, I want to remind you this. This is not a promise for every person on earth, but only for those who are chosen. This is the promise for the elect. He does, he does much more. Now verse 29 and 30. What does this goodness look like? What does it shape? And now in a certain way, God, he summarizes verse 28, but he also expands it. He says it in a different way. Now he's kind of looking forward. And he's saying, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn amongst brothers. Foreknowledge, predestination, conformity to what? That you and I would be conformed to the image of Jesus but also that Jesus would have a family. Remember when Jesus Christ came to earth and he rose again from the dead, he was the firstborn. He was the one who had conquered death. He was the new Adam in the faith. But Jesus wasn't raised for his own sake. He was raised so that God's family, his eternal family, could also be raised. And you and I, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, so that we might be among the family, so that the firstborn, Jesus Christ, here, here um, described as our brother, but our older brother, that he might have a whole family in heaven with him. This is the new family of God, a newly born family, raised from the dead in the pattern by which Jesus was raised from the dead. As Christ was raised physically, you and I are raised spiritually by new birth, and someday we'll be raised physically again. The gospel given, the gospel purchased family. So what is the purpose of all things? What is the purpose of suffering and evil to bring about God's glory? But more than that, God is doing, what is the good that's God doing in your life right now? He is making you more like Christ. He is making you and I to be conformed to the image of his son and mind, spirit, and body with our head, our hearts, our hands. Not merely a promise someday, but a fulfillment today. Today, God is conforming you to his image. He is bringing about your holiness, that you'd be more Christ-like. You no longer would look like our first parent, Adam, in the flesh, but you would look like the new Adam, our new covenant had the firstborn, our brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, holy, loving, and wise. Friends, God is not a good guesser. He is not a better military strategist. He is not powerful. He is all-powerful. His will is above all, and it will triumph over all. Friends, in our modern world of comfort and the modern view of the therapeutic self, we resist discomfort and avoid all hardship. We live often by fear management, and in some ways this is understandable. We know that in 
the media world today, our discontentment strings are often tugged. Your life could be better if you had this or if you didn't have this or if you lived there and not here. But know this, whatever your future holds, and it's not wrong necessarily to want to move or things like that, but know that today God has placed you here right now in the body you have for what? For good. To bring you into conformity with his son. Look at verse 30. For those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he, just, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God makes all things good for the Christian. He uses all things, including suffering, to conform his children to the image of God. This is called sanctification. But more specific is his plan. That before time, in the fullness of time, in the present time, to all of eternity. Do you notice what this scripture says? Predestination is before time began. Calling is in real time. He called you and I, um, the divine calling. We call this regeneration, right, or effectual calling. For those whom he called, he also justified. Justification happened for you and I. In one sense, it was earned by Christ at Calvary in a very real sense. But it isn't applied to us until we're called to faith in Christ. Justified by faith. For those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice glorified is given his past tense here. Some parts of scripture is given in future tense. You will be glorified. Here it's past tense. You've been glorified. Meaning your eternity is already set. It's in heaven. All these things will happen. This is called the golden chain of salvation. If you ever read a, a theology book, in fact, there's, there's books written just on this passage. This is the verse alone. It's called the Orda Salutis, or the order of salvation. Right? For God and all his people, this is their security. Before time began. He had already chosen you. See, God works outside of time. He's not like you and I. He's above time. He works in time, but he's outside of time. And before time began, he chose you. Let, let that one stick in your craw for a while, right? It'll make your brain hurt, but it's true. His calling of some people to faith in Christ. But the, all the people that he justified, he will also call. Through his life, death, and resurrection, applied at new birth through faith. I remember, this is probably 15, 16 years ago, I was wrestling with these texts. I was committed to being an Arminian. I did not like these ideas. They were, I enjoyed arguing about these. And in fact, my roommate, who was more Calvinistic, actually, we had to agree to, 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 to not argue about these things. He was the mature one. I was not in college. I was the one who was always yelling about them. Well, you know, if I drop this bead, does that mean that God's in charge of that? You know, yada, yada, yada. And, did God know what I was going to do right now? And I mean, just these arguments about these things all the time. And the things changed for me as I went through life. I was called into ministry. And God put in my path <laughs> a lot of challenges and even some difficulties, some of my own making. And through a series of just this providential, this is the days before big internet or blog, or, uh, um, uh, podcasts, the Lord put in my path audio by Ray Comfort, uh, Hell's Best Kept Seeker. He put in my path a few other just sermons and things that all of a sudden I started to listen to. And as I was wrestling with my own heart, the Lord was starting to draw me from these being things to argue about to things that are true and good. And I remember one day as I was still wrestling with these doctrines, but I had come to understand my own sin and the gospel. I was pretty clear on those things. And I remember as I was wrestling with this, I'm like, well, wait a second. Isn't it we who ultimately choose God, not God who chooses us? It occurred to me, wait a second. If it's true that ultimately it's in our power to choose God, that means when Jesus Christ died and rose again, 
he took a risk that nobody would choose him and that hell is hypothetically empty. And I remember laying in bed one night as I'd wrestled those things and I just, I'd read this text, I thought, no way, no way. Those whom he justified, he will glorify. Jesus Christ did not come to earth for a risk because our power, our will was so strong and God is sitting in heaven going, oh man, I failed. No, that is not what the scripture says and that is not who God is. And these truths are so glorious and freeing for you, Christian. So whether you are the weakest Christian here, or you think you're the weakest Christian here, which you probably should, no, this is the same God who called Christ from the dead is the same one who's going to keep your life. God saves sinners, all of us redeemed and restored. From a human perspective, there's a chain. This is linear. From God's perspective, this is all part of the covenant. Marvel at this. Be humbled by this. Be confident in glorious truths. Your place in life matters because God holds you. Let me read one more thing. It was a commentary on this text. Years ago, Harry A. Ironside, the great Bible teacher, told a story about an older Christian who was asked to give his testimony. He told how God had sought him and found him, how God had loved him, called him, saved him, delivered him, cleansed him, and healed him. A great witness to the grace, power, and glory of God. But after the meeting, a rather legalistic brother took him aside and criticized his testimony. As certain of us like and do. He said, I appreciate all you said about what God did for you, but you didn't mention anything about your part in it. Salvation is really part us and part God. You should have mentioned something about your part. Oh yes, said the older Christian. I apologize for that. I'm sorry. I really should have said something about my part. My part was running away and his part was running after me until he caught me. Yes, we've all run away, but God has set his love on us, predestined us to become like Jesus Christ. He has called us to faith and repentance, justified us, yes, and even more glorified us. So certain is the completion of his plan. May he alone be praised. So we end with the same image as we began. There is a way to read scripture, and it is true that this is a battle, and you and I are part of the battle. But on top of that and below that or beneath that, we are part of the ark and we're in the ark. And the doors are shut and you and I are safe and sound in the arms of God. He is the one doing the work. His son, is, his spirit is interceding for us today. So believe this. Love this. Glorify God for this. Read these again. Memorize these. Evaluate your life. And bring glory and honor to our good God who is doing good in your life. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for these glorious truths and these great doctrines of grace. And Father, I pray that for all of us, <clears throat> that we would understand more and more that without you choosing us and putting us on this path, that we would have never chosen you. And Father, may we all look at our lives, even the really difficult things. We know many in here are dealing with prayer requests for their children, their adult children, family, for health, for jobs, for the unknown, for, for houses. Even against physical struggles and maybe just those, just those deep spiritual battles that continue to come, the regrets of the past, the difficulties of family. 
Father, I thank you that we have a place to view these things. And I thank you that you've ordained all these things. That in some ways our circumstances are different, but in, in, in another way they're all the same. That all of us are being conformed to your image. I thank you that you are the God who reveals hidden things and you've given us these doctrines. And I pray that God that you would bring about the greatest unity and the greatest hope and the greatest honesty towards one another and in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, for choosing us. Now help us to sing for joy. In your name we pray. Amen.